sound guy back there. And I didn't turn, help, I'm not helping you out today. Where's this storm everyone's been talking about? <laughs> Is it? Um, along with what Derek just said, a couple weeks ago too, I was told in this, this marriage thing that we're doing that um, seven people in the, in the marriage class either recommitted their life to, to the Lord or gave their life to the Lord. And so I just sense that they're pouring out of God's spirit um, in this season. And it's something that we just got to give, give thanks to God. And speaking of marriage, there is this family life conference coming up. But I don't know if Will mentioned that this morning, did he? It's, it's coming up in March. We have pastors that are going to it. All kinds of people from our church are going to it. This is not just uh, a conference for the marriage in crisis. Um, if, if just talk to your spouse about this. Um, I think it's a, like a 24-hour power shot um, for you and your wife here in Grand Rapids. Um, the information is somewhere, either probably at the, in your newsletter or um, at our information table. All right, um, we're making our way through Romans. And in my opinion, I mean, we've made it to Romans 8 now. If you look at the Bible as a mountain range, to me, Romans 8 is just like this peak then that just rises and rises above all the other mountains. It just stands out. It's just, it's majestic. It's glorious. And uh, the last two times... Just to bring a, a little review here, we've, we've looked at believers' battle with sin. Now, while Romans teaches, Romans 6, Romans 8, repeatedly, that we've been set free from sin and death, while we've uh, left this old self and trusted Jesus for a new self, our old self still hasn't completely left us. And so Romans 7 tells us two times that sin lives in us, sin indwells us. That tumor, that cancer that kills and destroys, it still makes its home in us. But the Bible doesn't stop there at Romans 7. It gives us Romans 8. And then in Romans 8, this great chapter on the Holy Spirit, it says that the Spirit of God indwells us, lives in us, makes its home in us. And to me, this explains the battle that's going on in every single believer. It's this battle between the spirit of God that's in us and our sinful nature. Paul has this Greek word, the sarks. Some of your Bibles translate it the flesh. And a great summary of this battle is really in one verse in Galatians 5 verse 17. But the thing it would is with the sarks or the flesh, and this is where so many people go wrong, they think it's their physical body, but it's not our physical body. That's not the sin. The flesh or the sin nature, according to Paul, is deeper than that. It's the sin beneath the sin. It's the sinful motivation behind either my good behavior or my bad behavior. It's my selfishness. It's my self-absorption. It's my self-centeredness. It's me. It's the old me. 
And that's why it's so painful because this is what needs to be put to death. And so the way the battle is won, and this is just by review of what we looked at last time, it's not a technique, and everybody wants a technique. Give me the three steps. It's not through our own strength. It's not by performing better. It's not by trying harder. It's not by being more moral or good. I mean, this just so quickly just throws me back into me. It's through the Spirit. It's through the Spirit. And see, what the Spirit of God does when he comes into my heart, the first thing he does is he starts to show me my sin, not just my sinful behaviors, but the sin beneath the sin. And uh, the ministry then of the Holy Spirit is twofold once I can identify my sin. First of all, in verse 13 of Romans 8, through the Spirit, through the Spirit, through the Spirit, I am to put to death the flesh, the sarks, the sin nature. That's not just the behavior, but it's the motivation behind the behavior. And the way that I do that is verse 5. What the Holy Spirit does, he comes into my life, he shines a spotlight on Christ, he says, Rod, do you see the beauty of Jesus? Do you see him? No more condemnation, Rod, for those who are in Christ Jesus. And sometimes my heart just says, "Uh uh-uh, I don't believe that. And then he takes me to verse 3 and he says, "Uh uh-uh, he was condemned, Rod, you see how he was condemned for you? You see why there is no condemnation? And see, this is what melts the tumor. This is what shrinks it. Really, when it's all said and done, the Spirit of God in me causes me to worship and to live my life like Eric Little ran with my eyes to the sky, my mouth open. All of life is an act of worship. That's how you kill the sarks. All right, that's just by way of review. Now Paul moves from dealing with sin to dealing with this other great problem. And that's the problem of suffering. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. I'm going to read verses 13 just for context. Verses 14 and seven, through 17 are going to be the main verses that we're going to look at this morning. But I'm going to keep reading all the way down to 25 just again for context. So this is God's word to us from Romans 8. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him, by the Spirit in us, we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs to God, co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. In fact, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration In fact, that word there means meaningless, vanity. The creation was subjected to frustration, to to this meaninglessness, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it and hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. For we know 
that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. That's appropriate. (laughs) Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. This is God's word. You can be seated. All right, this problem of suffering. You know what I'm talking about? I think the problem of suffering is best summed up by this one word that Paul uses, the word groan. Three times he uses it. And the literal meaning of of, of this word, groan, it's this intense sound of someone who is in enormous agony and pain, like that of a woman in childbirth. Well, it's the sound of birth pains. I've been in the delivery room for three of my children, so I've heard these groans. Dads, you know these groans, right? Moms, you know these groans. In fact, uh, there was this, Libby had this friend who was the, the sweetest, most polished, uh, Pollyanna Christian you can kind of imagine. But I'm telling you, four-letter words just flowed from her mouth during these groans. <laughs> we just thought that was kind of funny when we heard about that. <clears throat> but in Paul's day, add to this, there's no modern medicine, there's no painkiller. On top of that, so many women died in childbirth. And so these birth pains that Paul's referring to are like death groans. Because this word is also used in ancient Greek literature to describe the battlefield. It's the sound that one heard immediately following the battle. When the fighting was done, these agonizing sighs and screams of the wounded and the dying. And so... This word groan, it's, it's the sound made by someone who's in enormous pain and agony. It's a death groan. And so in verse 22, look at what Paul says. He says, the whole creation groans. Meaning that everything that God made, the entire universe right now, is in enormous pain and agony. It's groaning. And Paul explains why this is. You go to verse 20 and he says it's frustrated. And the reason it's frustrated is because of what he says in verse 21. It's in this bondage to decay. It's decaying. It's dying. Therefore, it's groaning. And the reason for this is because all creation, just like us today... It's been infected with this tumor, with this cancer, and our world right now is wearing out. 
It's in pain. It's dying. And I don't know if you look at the world this way, but listen to it. I mean, do you hear its groans? Watch the news. Nations are groaning. Our country right now is groaning. Cities are groaning. Suburbs are groaning. The hood is groaning. Gated communities are groaning. The poor are groaning. The rich are groaning. Listen to our young people today. They're groaning. They are in enormous pain. Our elderly are groaning. Our families are groaning. Our marriages are groaning. And now wouldn't it be nice if Paul, after saying all of this, said, but, but thanks be to Christ, we who are in him, we don't groan. He doesn't say that. Instead, in verse 23, he says, we groan. See, we're not exempt. Every single one of us at some point in life will experience the enormous agony and pain of our world. And some of you are feeling it right now. In fact, I I, I love how Paul puts this. He says, we who have the first fruits of the spirit, we groan. Because this word first fruits is loaded with meaning. It's a harvest term. And what saddens me right now when I think about this is just where our culture is today. We are so removed from the land. I don't know if you know this, but 100 years ago, 90% of, of our country was directly tied to the land and to farming. Meaning the first thing that my kids would do when they woke up in the morning was not look at a screen, but they'd go milk the cows or get the eggs. Anyway, that's just a little hobby horse. Now, do you know, less than 10% of us are tied to the land. But this term, first fruits, it's, 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 it's a harvest term. And when harvest season came, the first fruits, of course, were the first things harvested. And because God says about everything that the first always belongs to me, every harvest season, God commanded for a one-day feast, this feast was called the Feast of First Fruits. And what God basically says, you can read about this in places like Leviticus 23. God says, as you harvest life from the earth, the first of that harvest must be brought to me. Bring it to temple, celebrate it, have a feast. Now, I don't know if you even know about this feast. Does anyone even know what day of the week They celebrated this feast. Now, I'm going to be honest right now. This drives me crazy. We know all about Christmas. And we have all these other celebrations that God never commands. But these are God's appointed feasts. He instructed them. Okay, the feast of first fruits. First, first, what day of the week do you think it is? Sunday. Now it's on a particular Sunday. Does anyone know? Thank you. 
the first Sunday following Passover. Now, just think about this for a moment. On Passover, as God's people are celebrating their liberation from Egypt because a slaughtered lamb and its blood were placed over the doorposts of their home, protecting them, liberating them, on that day, Christ is on a cross as God's slaughtered lamb. On the next day, the start of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the day when every Jew gives thanks to God for the, for the bread that comes from the earth, Jesus, the bread of life, is put into the earth. More specifically, he's planted. Because unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it only remains a single seed, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. And then on the next day, the, 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 the Sunday following Passover, the Feast of first fruits, as God's people are celebrating life from the earth and bringing that to temple, Jesus is the first fruits of life from the earth. And that's why two times in, in 1 Corinthians 15, this great, this great chapter on the resurrection, Paul says, Christ, who is the first fruits of the resurrection, he is the first fruits of life coming out of the earth. And now in this text, Paul not only says this about Jesus, but he says, we who have the spirit are the first fruits of what? Of life from the earth, of resurrection. Meaning that song that we sing, the same power, the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. It lives in me. It lives in us. That's awesome. In fact, uh, verse 11 of chapter 8 says this. And if the spirit of him who raised Christ Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who lives in you. And yet, we suffer. We still get sick. We still experience tragedy, car accidents, debilitating injuries, plagues, hurricanes, cancer, drought, unemployment, bankruptcy, disappointment. We suffer, we groan, and any Christian who tells you otherwise is a liar. In fact, you want to know something that disgusts me as much as anything today? Is the Christian who propagates this idea that now that we are in Christ, we no longer groan or suffer. It's that same teaching that says we who are in Christ, we no longer sin. And both of these teachings, which is an over-realized eschatology, bringing too much of the future into the present, Paul says, we groan for the future. We don't have it all yet. And Christian, you're still going to sin, but guess what? You're in him. There's no more condemnation. And Christian, you're still going to suffer. In fact, Paul takes it even further than this. Because there's some people today who actually say the proof of a spirit-filled life is that you no longer suffer. Even though Paul, Jesus, and the whole New Testament teach otherwise. 
But see, Paul takes this further because not only does Paul say, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, the power of the resurrection in us, not only do we still groan, but look at this clause in verse 17. He says, now if we are children, then we are heirs, and oh, what an inheritance we have. Heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. Here's the clause. If indeed we share in his sufferings. You know what Paul's teaching here? You want proof that you have a spirit-filled life? If you share in his sufferings. And see, in Philippians 3, verse 10, Paul says this. He says, I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of the resurrection. And see, so many Christians, they just stop there, but Paul doesn't. Paul says, and I want to, I want to have this fellowship, this koinonia, this oneness of sharing in Christ's sufferings. And why does Paul say this? Because Paul sees that this is Jesus' path. This is Jesus' way. That Jesus' path to glory, it always goes through suffering. And we, we looked at this and when we studied Philippians. And in Philippians 2, we learned that Jesus went down. He became small. He humbled himself. He became nothing. He became a slave. And he suffered. He suffered like no one else. Therefore... God exalted him to the highest place. And see, that's the path to glory. And our path today is his path. And his path is to be our path. Our path to glory is always through suffering. And so when I read Romans 8, the mark of the spirit-filled life It's not knowing my Bible backwards and forwards. It's not having these mystical experiences with Jesus. It's not speaking in tongues. It's not performing signs and wonders. It's a life that's marked with suffering. And some of you right now are up to your eyeballs in pain and loss. And right now your heart's saying yes. And those of you who have lived a comfortable life and don't know suffering ought to be asking right now. Living a spirit-filled life. Because verses like Hebrews 2 2 verse 10 say say this, Jesus Jesus was made perfect. (laughs) Meaning Jesus didn't just come as perfection. He had to be made perfect. Perfect. And how was Jesus, God in the flesh, made perfect? Hebrews 10, 2 verse 10 says, Jesus was made perfect through suffering. See, and this is what suffering does. Suffering breaks me. Suffering wrecks me. Suffering is the only thing that I can see that will actually humble me. Suffering is the only thing that causes me to feel weakness and desperation. 
See, and what the Bible teaches over and over again, that without weakness, there'll never be strength. Without death, there'll never be a resurrection. And without suffering, there'll never be glory. But look at verse 18. It says, look at Paul. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. I mean, we have something awesome on the horizon. All creation is waiting for it. Paul says, I'm groaning for it. And he sums it up in this one word, glory. And you see this word throughout the New Testament. What is, what is the New Testament? What does Paul mean by this word glory? Well, simply put, glory is what those of us who are in Christ right now are becoming. And I don't know if you know this, but we are becoming something so majestic, something so glorious. I mean, right now, just think of the best food. Think of the best music. Think of the most beautiful face. Think of the most awe-inspiring athlete. Think of the best romance. Think of anything that's best that this world has to offer. And this is only a small hint of the glory that is to come. In fact, I believe if you and I right now could see what it is that we are becoming, if we could see it, that if I could see what, what Rod will someday be, I would be so tempted to fall down and worship myself. And as this text says, it's going to be so glorious that all creation is kind of like this little kid at a Super Bowl parade. This kid is just kind of standing on his tiptoes with his neck straining, just waiting for the stars to come around the corner. Because the Bible says, when it comes, the trees of the field will clap their hands, the rocks will sing, and the mountains will burst forth in song. And see, you and I today suffer, and we groan with this in mind. Because what we see is we see Jesus' path. We see the Jesus way. And we see where Jesus' suffering led him. It led him to a cross. But as Will said this morning, it stopped with a cross. The cross led to a resurrection. And the resurrection led to his exaltation and his glorification. Our suffering right now is leading us to the same end, which means this. Our suffering, our groaning, something that's utterly worthless to our world, in a strange way, becomes our treasure. Do you treasure your suffering? In fact, there will never be a person that comes through these doors who's embarrassed because of the suffering that they're enduring. I know churches like that. Where people who are going through hard times, they can't show up here. Because they're so embarrassed. You know what I, here's what I want to tell you. I caution you on the other end. If that's you, try not to get a big head. Be 
Because God is so honoring you and gifting you with the gift of suffering. And it's going to so someday lead to just unbelievable glory. And see what Romans 8 is here to teach us is what the Holy Spirit does when he comes and he makes our home in us and how the Holy Spirit helps us with our suffering. And look at verses 14 to 16. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you do not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you receive the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share with him in his glory. In fact, I think these might be some of the most amazing verses in the, in the Bible. In no way can I impact the full meaning this morning. But the reason I so love these verses is because, in my opinion, they get at the very heart as to why God made the world and why God made you and why God made me. Do you even know why God made us? Do you know? Well, see, we have this awesome belief as Christians that God is a plurality, that God within himself is a community, or more specific than that, that God... As God is a family of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so the reason why God made us is God says, you know what? Let us make man and woman in our own image so we can share this with them. So we can share the joy of the intimacy of the Trinity. And see, that's why when Adam sinned, not only did he get infected with this tumor leading to death, but more importantly, a relationship was broken. You need to see that. This relationship for which we were made, we were made for God. We were made to be in God and in God's family. It was broken. And we lost our family. We lost home. And I think this is one of the main reasons why our world groans right now is because our world is orphaned. People are homesick. And see, just think about this. Then Jesus shows up on the stage and he does this incredibly shocking thing. He calls God Father. Father. In fact, when I was in Israel, I studied under a rabbi and I'll never forget one of the things that he said. He's... He said, no Jew today or no Jew during the time of Jesus would ever address God as father. We call him king of the universe. We call him Lord. We call him judge. And he said, it probably would have sent shockwaves through the whole system to see this guy addressing God as father. In fact, he said some people probably even got chills or goosebumps just hearing God call. Jesus calling his God, Father. And see, not only did Jesus address God that way, but then he taught his disciples how to pray. He said, this is the way I want you to come to God. I want you to come to God saying, our Father. And he taught them about the Father. In fact, I love after the resurrection in John chapter 20, Mary Magdalene is at the tomb, and you know this, she's so distraught. And then she hears that, 
that word Mary, the Lord calling her Mary. And then verse 17, Jesus said to her, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers. I mean, these are people that just abandoned him, who betrayed him, who left him. And now he's saying, go tell my brothers that I'm returning to my father and to your father. And see, what's going on now after the resurrection is God's family is being restored. And God is reconciling his family. I remember one of my first nights in Jerusalem. And uh, it was probably my third night. My family wasn't there yet, so I was really missing them. And I just decided to go out for dinner. And I happened to see this family, kind of like my family, except um, a lot younger. And the kids were, they had two boys and a little girl. The girl was probably three years old. And you know, I, I couldn't understand anything they were saying, but I, I was just kind of watching them, missing my family. And then all of a sudden, the, the little girl, the three-year-old, she all of a sudden somehow accidentally hurt herself. And all of a sudden, for the first time, I understood a word. She started crying out, Abby, Abba, Abby. And I just watched this girl crying for, for Abby, Abba. And I watched her dad just kind of pick her up and put her in his lap. And I just watched as her sadness just quickly turned to light. That's it. That's the whole thing. See, look at what Paul says in verse 16. When the Spirit comes into us, he causes us to cry out, Abba! See, the Spirit comes in and he, he shows us not only the beauty of Jesus, but he shows us the beauty of the Father, that God is not just judge or creator or Lord, but that creator, Lord, and judge is Abba. In fact, it's, it, it's deeper than just father. Because here Paul moves away from the Greek and he goes towards his mother tongue. And he doesn't say father, but he says Abba. And I think this word Abba, it's, it's a universal word. Because in every culture, the first words out of a child's mouth, because they don't have teeth yet or something like this. Baba. Dada, Abba. Because even though that child still doesn't understand what dad is, that child has this innate longing for that person who will perfectly love them and cherish them and value them and perfectly protect them. Abba, Tata. And see, we never, ever outgrow this longing. About a week ago, I, I was invited to this pastor's luncheon. And it happened to be in Byron Center, where I was raised. And it happened to be at, at the church in which I attended for the first 18 years of my life. And honestly, I don't think I've been back there for 20 years. So I just thought, you know what, I'll go to this thing. 
And when I, when I went to the church, something just like, okay, I'm not going to the luncheon right now. I just had this desire to just walk through every room of that place because that place was filled with memories. I went upstairs. I went downstairs. And I got to this place in the basement. And I remembered something for the first time since I was four or five years old. And... Um, it was a Sunday where I was acting up big time. I think I did that quite a bit. And I can still remember my dad just grabbing me and walking right down that middle aisle. And for some reason, I, I, I can even remember, like, my mind didn't know why I was doing what I was doing. But I was just screaming at the top of my lungs, <laughs> like an out-of-the-body experience, you know? Like, it wasn't really me doing it. And I, I remember my dad taking me to this spot in the basement. And he spanked me hard and he took me in his arms and he yelled at me I just, he said this every time after he spanked us it used to make me mad now it brings me to tears and I understand it because I'm a dad this hurts me more than you Rod I just I, I Tears just welled up in my eyes like they are now. And, and, and I thought, all right, stop this. I went up to the pastor's luncheon. I left. I'm driving home. And my dad calls. I told him about the story. He started laughing. And I just, I said, Dad, thanks. Because God disciplines those he loves. My dad loved me. I got through my dad just a small taste of this longing in my heart for my divine dad. And see, now I'm on the other side of the equation where, where I'm a dad. And uh, I'm, I, I'm very flawed as a dad. My kids, if they were here, they'd be the first one to tell you that. But this is something I know about my heart, that there's, there's nothing my kids could ever do that could get my heart to stop loving them intensely. And this doesn't mean that my kids couldn't become so evil that I can't talk with them or that I need to keep away from them. I mean, anything is possible. But the one thing I know about my heart as a dad, I could never stop loving them. Never. And you know as a father that I'm not bragging right now. I'm not saying anything great about my heart. It's just the way it is. In fact, even a few weeks ago, I learned something else about my heart as a, as a dad. One of my kids was playing basketball. And, uh, yeah, again, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. He became just a head case out there. And the harder he tried, I mean, the worse it got. And this is the, the, the child of mine that always is looking up in the stands at me. And so he's doing this during the game, flailing, floundering, looking up at me. And I realized something about my heart. I love him. I love him so much, but I've never felt more love than then. 
And I just thought, that's God. That's my father in heaven. I mean, he just looks at me and he, and he sees me when I'm floundering and I'm just kind of flailing away. <laughs> and he loves me. And see, a lot of you know where this text is going. It's going to end with these awesome words that nothing can separate us from the love of God. The, nothing, nothing in all creation. And see, if nothing can separate my kids from my flawed heart, then how much more so is this with God? And then I think about this with, with myself as a dad and with all of our dads that our earthly dads, they're only shadows of the daddy for which we've all been made. They're just these stand-ins and even the best dads just fall so short of the real thing. And I know for some of you right now, you don't even have a clue as to what I'm talking about. And I even thought maybe I shouldn't share this because some of you have had such a strained or a painful relationship with your parents and with your dad. And it's hard for you right now to comprehend a heavenly father who just burns with love for you, who delights in you, who would do anything for you, who would do anything to get you. But listen to me, if that's you, the very fact that you feel those things still tells me that you understand this innate longing for the real thing, or you wouldn't feel that way. And see, what we've done with the gospel, or maybe this is just from where I come from, we've made the gospel all about justification and sanctification, meaning the gospel is all about God dealing with my guilt, God cleaning me up, but the gospel is so much more. The ultimate goal of the gospel is not justification. It's not sanctification. The ultimate goal of the gospel is adoption. And Adam's race, as the Bible teaches, is helplessly estranged. We are lost. We are far from home. But God of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they desperately want us back. Now imagine if you um, grew up without parents. And you know what's kind of sad about that for some of you? That's not even hard for you to imagine. That's your reality. But imagine just kind of going from foster home to foster home. And then imagine one day that you're brought to court because of this great crime that you committed. And and deep down you knew because of that that you had no case. And so there you stand before the judge just fearing for your life. And as you're standing before him, this amazing advocate just walks into the room. And he pulls the judge aside. And he proves to the judge that this crime has already been paid for. And then you see the judge look at you and say, not guilty. I mean, how amazing would that be? That's the gospel. But listen, it doesn't stop there. It gets even better because it would be like you being in that courtroom all relieved that your life has been spared and then all of a sudden seeing the judge take off his robe, come over to you, put his arm around you and say, you know that father you always long for? I'm he. And then seeing that advocate walk over and say, Ness, I'm your big brother. We're family. 
And see, because the gospel is not just about justification. It's not just about sanctification, but it's about God reconciling us. It's about God adopting us. Because not only are we sinners, we were once orphans, hopelessly estranged from our daddy. And as Ezekiel 16 says, we were left in a field, left to die. But God came, took us into his arms, and he took us home. The Bible gives us just some amazing pictures. Just point us to these truths, because I don't know if you know this, but this whole book is gospel. The whole thing. It's not just John 3.16. This whole book is gospel. And there's the story in 2 Samuel 9, when King David is at the height of his power, and the civil war in the land is over, and power now is shifted from the house of Saul to the house of David. And so David asks, is anyone left from Saul's family? Because in that day, what, what, what a, what, when power would be go from one house to another house, this house would then kill everybody in that house just so that they wouldn't be a threat anymore. And someone says, yeah, there's one, there's one left. There's this guy named Ephibosheth. And not only is this guy grandson to Saul, but he is also Jonathan's son. And so David says, well, bring him to me. And here's what the Bible also tells us about this guy, Mephibosheth. The same day in which his dad, Jonathan, and his grandfather, Saul, died in battle, panic spread throughout the palace, and his nurse, trying to leave in a real hurry, drops Mephibosheth, and Mephibosheth, when he's dropped, breaks his back. He's lame. And so the Bible tells us that he changes his name then to Mephibosheth, which means this, shameful or despised one. The place where he goes into hiding is a place called Lodabar, which means wasteland. And so here you have this former prince who's now named shameful, hiding in Lodabar, a wasteland, as an orphan, hoping that the king doesn't find him. And so years later now, David finds him and summons him. And in 2 Samuel 9, when he comes before David, expecting to die, because this is what he says, he says, who am I that you should take interest in a dead dog like me? And he comes before David, he falls at David's feet, and all he says to David is, your slave... And I love what David does. He calls him by name, Mephibosheth. And as Mephibosheth is expecting the sword, David says, do not be afraid. You are no slave to me. You are my son. You are to eat at my table. You are to live in my palace as one of my sons. And see, this picture just moves me. Because this is the gospel. Because like Mephibosheth, we have lost our father. We have lost our home. We are living in Lodabar, a wasteland. We are orphaned and far from home. Our name has become shameful. But the king of all kings, he loves us. And he came to this world to find us and to rescue us and to bring us home. To let us eat at the king's table and live in the king's palace. Do you even care about the orphan?
Do you? Do you even know what every orphan feels? Do you know that every orphan deep within them, they have this feel of being unacceptable? Especially the older they get. It's this anxiety, it's this fear that comes from this realization that no one wants me, no one chose me. It's this fear of rejection that comes to dominate their lives. I remember when I was at an orphanage in Romania about 15 years ago. We were there all week and most of the kids in the orphanage were were, were just younger kids, but there was this 17-year-old. For some reason, he just kind of gravitated to me. And it was the last day in which we were there. And he said, hey, Rod, I want to take you to my room. I didn't realize what a big deal that was, but I said, great. He took me to his room. He was so proud of it. But then he said something to me. He said, this is where I'm going to spend the rest of my life. And probably being insensitive, I said, why? And he said, because no one will ever You know what Ephesians says? Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. (laughs) Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. And what are those blessings? For he chose us. He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. Do you hear that? Orphan, once orphans, did you hear that? He picked you. You didn't pick him. Don't take yourself seriously. He picked you. In fact, it says before the foundations of the world, before he even made anything, he already set his mind on you. He set his heart on you that you're going to be part of his family. And see, the reason why the Holy Spirit comes into our heart, as verse 16 says, his spirit testifies with our spirit. We're sons. And see, without the spirit of God in me, testifying to my spirit, I don't think I would ever know God as father. I think I could know God as judge. I think I could know God as creator of the universe. I might even know God as savior. But I don't think I could ever know that he's my father. He's Abba. And see, this is why the Holy Spirit comes into our life. This is why he makes his home in us. He wants to assure us that as we struggle and as we groan and as we suffer, the Spirit assures us of who we are. We're sons and daughters. In fact, I love what Jesus prayed. The night before he was killed, he says to his father, Father, I want you to love them as you love me. See, that's the spirit of adoption. 
that our father loves us as much as he loves his own son. And just think right now how much the father loves his son, Jesus. And the spirit comes into our lives, comes into our heart to convince us right now. Rod, God loves you every bit as much as he loves Jesus. God sees you right now, Rod, just like he sees Jesus. And Rod, God is going to treat you in the same way he treats his own son. And the spirit comes into our life and he causes us literally to cry out, Abba. In fact, that word cry there in Greek, it's the word kratzo. It's the cry of the desperate, desperate. It's the cry of that person in agony. It's the same word that's used of blind Bartimaeus who's just crying out, son of David, have mercy on me. It's that woman in Matthew 15 whose daughter is demon-possessed. Jesus, have mercy on my daughter. It's the same word for Jesus on the cross, crying out to God, my God, my God. And so this isn't like some speaking in tongues. This isn't the cry of some believer having some existential, mystical experience with God. This is the cry of the believer when he has fallen on his face like the little boy who's fallen in the mud. His arms and knees are all bloody, but he looks up and he sees daddy there and he cries, Abba, Abba, daddy. And see, by his spirit, right now, you can know the king, creator, judge, ruler of the universe as daddy. And you can crawl into his lap like a little kid. And you can shamelessly and relentlessly talk to him. I'm telling you, a little kid would never ask a judge or a policeman to, to, to tie their shoes but they ask their dads. And we can just come to them like little kids, shamelessly, relentlessly, continuously. And you see how this changes everything? This is a game changer. This is what changes me. As the text says, it's not by fear. It's not this fear that God's not going to like me anymore or that he's going to reject me or that he's going to... He's going to push me away. All that's been cast out. God changes us by melting us. This is why, too, I can live in a world that groans. This is why I can groan. Because the Spirit comes into my life and He assures me, Rod, you have a Father who loves you, who delights in you, who's going to protect you. So let me just end with this question. Are you groaning today? Do you know him, really know him as father? Do you see him as your heavenly daddy who's calling you, who wants to find you, who wants to love you, perfectly love you, who wants to delight in you, who wants to hold your life in his hands? He wants to call you my son, my daughter. Some of you today need to come home. You need to come home. 
And here's the picture Jesus gives us that when you come home, the father is there on the porch and he's just waiting. He's just waiting to just shamelessly run to you and wrap his arms around you and kiss you and put a robe on you and take you home. Run to him today. Let's pray. God, right now I'm especially just thinking of those who have such a difficult time understanding this truth of God as Father because of disappointment with their own dads and the pain and the experience that they've had with their own dads. And this morning, God, I pray that you would open the eyes of every single heart through the power of your spirit so that we can see that the king of the universe, that the judge, that the Lord of all is a loving and a gracious father and that you'll give anything. You'll even give your own son to get us back. Let us see that today, Lord.